Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Fabulous Pelton Cast. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Caracino. And we are joined today by my ESPN colleague, Brady Henderson, our Seahawks reporter. Glad to have Brady back on the pod, but uh, wish it was under happier circumstances. We wanted to have you on today to talk about uh, our other former ESPN colleague, the legendary NFL reporter, John Clayton, who we got the, uh, the sad news on Friday, passed away at age 67 after an illness. And, you know, you posted a great remembrance of John Clayton and your experiences working together at uh, ESPN Seattle. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it was tough news. I, I had heard that he was not doing well, but um, it just all seemed to happen so quickly and, and just surprising in the sense, I think that, you know, Clayton always seemed superhuman to me in the way that he could just work nonstop. Uh, he was seemed like he was always on. And, you know, meanwhile, he was one of the more, one of the most devoted husbands you could ever imagine, um, you know, caring after his, his wife, Pat and the the guy, I just don't know how he ever had time to eat or sleep uh, or do anything just because he was always on. And he just seemed like a guy who would go forever. And um, that's why it's, it was just uh, surprising in that sense, really sad just because he was, um, you know, a a help, really helpful person to me um, as he was, I'm sure to, a lot of young reporters, uh, just based on the stories and the tributes that I've read, uh, really helpful to me early in my career. And, and just a guy who as big as he was, as giant uh, as he was in this industry, um, just made everybody feel like they were a peer, you know, and um, I, I think that's probably what I'm going to remember him most by. Yeah, I think we've seen a number of similar stories from people talking about, you know, uh, Mike Sean Dugar, who we've had on frequently of The Athletic, about having him on the show early on, similar to you, and, you know, his his willingness to help people out as they're coming up, which, you know, is, is not always the case in this industry, is you know, and uh, certainly I think is in some ways maybe a more important legacy than his reporting. Yeah, and, and as I mentioned in, in the uh, Twitter thread that I posted the other night, I mean, I was very young in my career. And I, so I got to know John, I'll back up here um, at 710 ESPN Seattle. That's where I, I kind of got my uh, reporting career started. I was um, sort of do, worn a bunch of hats there working, like kind of managing the, the website and doing some Seahawks reporting. And I was at a point in my career where nobody, uh, let alone somebody as big as John Clayton should have been having me on their radio show um just because I was starting out and you know, I would get on the radio and I would my you know voice would be cracking because I'd be so nervous and <laughs> um you know didn't really have a great handle of, on what I was talking about either you know just being so new um to the to the beat and everything and he would have me on there and, and he would ask me questions that um you know he, he's asking me questions that he knows the answer to he, he knows way better than I do but you know he was helping me out and he would ask me to come on the show Uh, And normally when you do that, it's like you're helping the host out. He was really helping me out just because he was helping me um, just kind of get my foot in the door and get comfortable with that. And he's just done that to a lot of people. And um, another story is I I shared this in the in the thread that I mentioned. But before I got the ESPN job, ESPN.com job that I had wanted for the longest time, it was my dream job. Um, I did some freelancing in 2015. Uh, because basically um, they were transitioning between uh, reporters on, on the Seahawks beat. And it was going to be, uh, I think, a, a couple weeks or so before they could get Shield Kapadia in place because he was, remember, moving from uh, Philadelphia to Seattle. Yep. And his predecessor, Terry Blunt, was, you know, his last day was such that I think there was going to be a, a two or three week gap in there. And so, I had put my name in the hat for the job, but by the time I got wind of it, they were already, you know, basically had hired Shield. So they asked me, look, do you want to, do you want to fill in? And I said, yes, I'm, I'm going to, you know, treat that as basically like an extended job interview uh, for if the job ever comes open again, I would be on their short list. And I was very nervous just because again, I, it was basically like a two or three week job interview. And a few days into it, I got a call out of the blue uh, from, from Clayton. And if you, anybody who's ever got a call from Clayton, he would always identify himself by his full name. 
hey, Brady, John Clayton here. Um, you know, I've got caller ID. I know exactly who it is. I know, uh, I know who, who was calling. But he would always identify himself by his, his full name. And uh, he just called me to encourage me and, and to tell me he thought I was doing a good job. And um, you know how compliments just mean so much more coming from certain people. And that compliment meant the world to me. I, I was at a time just, you know, struggling with confidence and uh, hearing that from Clayton, it really made me feel like I could, I could do this job and I'll never forget that call. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing that stands out in a lot of these tributes is just the way that sort of John Clayton invented modern beat writing in a sense obviously the news breaking part was always an element although not as important in a newspaper era as it is in the 24 7 news cycle that we live in now with the internet but in twitter in particular but you know the the salary cap sheets the the depth charts for every team you know there were there's a handful of reporters bob ryan at the with the celtics at the boston globe maybe but uh he sort of invented i think doing it for the entire league at the level of detail that he did yeah and uh you know it's it's been fun over the years hearing stories from guys like mike sando and dave bowling who were on the beat with it you know back in clayton's beat days and there are just some legendary stories about the level to which he was plugged in with the Seahawks, it, it's like, you know, it, it would blow your mind. And, you know, Sando, uh, I think he told it, he put it really um, in perspective one time where he was saying that, you know, he would hear things, uh, he, he would know things that most people in the building did not know yet. And that, that just gives you an idea of like, you got to be so plugged in at the highest levels uh, of an organization to, to get that kind of information before a lot of people do. And, you know, to cover the league that the way he did and to be as plugged in as he was, I mean, you don't, you don't do that by burning bridges and by mistreating people you do that by treating people really well and, and, and with integrity and, you know, protecting your sources. And, um, it's, you know, he, he was, he was one of the foremost newsbreakers in, in NFL media and that's not easy to do. And, and you just really have to, you really have to treat people well and you along with, you know, working your tail off and working nonstop and um, all that stuff, but you've really got to treat people well to do that. Yeah. That was part of the theme of, of Dave's uh, piece this weekend in the Washington post that, you know, as much as everyone thinks of him with the information and statistics and things like that, that it was really about the relationships with people that was the most important to him. Yeah. And, and not, I say that and not in like a, a kiss ass way because, you know, he was, he was blunt. There was, um, you know, I, I th there, I, th I can't remember who it was, but somebody shared a story about the last conversation. I think it was a, a guy from Denver, Mike Cleese from Denver, um, shared a story about the last conversation he had with John a few days ago. And, and Mike asked him, why did the Seahawks trade Russell Wilson? And John's told him, John tells him because they're stupid. Um, you know, <laughs> and, and I imagine that he wouldn't, he wouldn't have a hard time expressing to John Schneider that, um, you know, that he disagreed with that. And I think Steiner actually was on 710 ESPN Seattle yesterday that they did a nice uh, Saturday tribute in, you know, Clayton's uh, usual Saturday time slot, that, that Saturday show that he loved so much. Um, and I, John Schneider was on there. And I think he made a comment to that effect too, that Clayton would, um, you know, tell him when he felt like they overpaid for somebody or, or things like that. So, you know, he treated people well, but that's not to say that he was just, telling them what they wanted to hear. He, he would be blunt with them, but you know, there, there's a way to do that where you're still doing it with respect. And I think he, he found that balance. Spitting facts until the end. <laughs> We're all right there with John Clayton. Um, I think the interesting thing for me about John Clayton was as somebody who hasn't interacted with him, it kind of feels like he existed in this place that almost like doesn't really happen anymore. Where it's like, we came up knowing him on a purely national level to me, like, strictly as the person who would pop in a sports center. I think it was called two minute drill that he would do, or they go to a segment with him and it's just like, bam, 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 bam. Like facts about every single team across the league in an era when we didn't have the athletic, right? We didn't have people like that you had access to covering every single team. There wasn't Twitter at the time. It was like, that was where information came from was that the John Clayton two minute drill. And it's almost like, like we knew him on this national level and the level of fame that he had as a reporter on a personal level, 
I think is something that it's almost unheard of now, right? Like even like Schefter and Woj and people like that, like the personality that comes out of there is just a snippet as compared to John Clayton. Obviously we saw it through the This Is Sports Center commercials, but it was like, you really got a sense of who John Clayton was as a person and a personality. And I think that's what really attached people to him in a longer term sense. And then to see it on the smaller level, like the tributes that we've seen, or even his like Saturday morning show that he hosted, it was like, it was a local thing as well, how he existed on these two different phases that he almost belonged to Seattle and belonged to the entire league at the same mm -hmm. time. And I think it's been a pretty cool to, thing to see during these tributes. Um, and also like listening to that radio show, how long his answers would be, right? And how thorough they would be as opposed and, and to- like respecting like sometimes ridiculous questions from people. Oh yeah. Yeah, right. It's pretty wild. I, I just think his personality is something where we almost get so caught up in this era of like, who's finding out the information first or whatever. And it was like, I don't feel like that's exactly what it was with John Clayton. It, it was about the information and it was almost about who was conveying it to you and the trust that he had and the personality that he was doing it with. He was like the quintessential 90s ESPN employee. Yeah, that's a really good point about how you know, all of that was before Twitter. And like, you know, now we find out from Schefter on Twitter you know, we used to find out from Clayton on TV and, you know, just cause that, that was a different era. And there's probably, you know, NFL fans who have kind of grown up in the Twitter era, or, or at least that's when, you know, that that's as long as they've been consuming news and they probably don't realize that, you know, I, I read uh, an obituary on Clayton. I think it was in the Seattle times. And it mentioned a comment that Barack Obama made one time where he said, I wouldn't set my fantasy lineups until I heard John Clayton say who was in and who was out. Um, which just gives you an idea of like that, that he was Twitter before Twitter. Yeah. It's an incredible level of fame. And I, I had a similar thought to Tristan where, you know, hearing about his time on the beat with the news tribune, like we had the Seattle times, we'd read the Seattle PI at our grandparents' house, but the news tribune may as well have been in Akron for all we were ever going to see it as kids. And yet he still was such an important figure to us because of, you know, the, the ESPN appearances and then also his radio appearances, like first on KJR. And, and to me, you know, that this is sports center commercial, the ponytail, that's kind of the national thing. I feel like there was this very hyper local thing of I'm John Clayton, damn it, that they used to play all the time. That is yeah. kind of like the real ones know about that. And then obviously transition that over to his almost third career, I guess, in a way, the first career being beat reporter, second career, you know, national TV reporter, and then third career hosting these local radio shows, uh, you know, in the later stages of his life. Yeah. And, and he had his quirks uh, on the radio that I'll always remember the, the, this, you know, the way the, the sayings that he had, you know, he would, he would say, you know, he would be making a series of points. And then as he would continue, he would say, you know, but also to uh, such and such. And then, if he really wanted to punctuate something, it was, um, you know, and let's put it this way, this is not going to happen, you know, and let's put it this way. That was his favorite one. And, you know, the other quirks where he, he, for the life of him, could not pronounce some people's names. Uh, and it seemed to be like the, the Polynesian NFL players he would have a hard time with. Um, and just things like that, where it's just, it was Clayton, you know, and uh, just the quirkiness does, does not even begin to describe it. Just a, a legendary character with some of his quirks. And the other thing that stood out Friday night when this news came down is just, you know, Tristan mentioned this, the level of both local and national reaction. I mean, my timeline for an extended period of time on Twitter seemed to exclusively be, be people remembering John Clayton. And it's that's a level that, you know, only a handful of people get to that, uh, you know, they have such an impact in a personal way on so many different people. Yeah. I mean, just the, 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 the range of people that you saw those tributes from, I mean, Jim Ursay uh, wrote something, I mean, obviously reporters, you know, just because if you've covered the NFL for more than a few years, you've crossed paths with John Clayton um, and it was reporters, it was coaches, it was Jim Ursay and owner, um, you know, Malcolm Smith, uh, you know, the Super Bowl MVP, a uh, Super Bowl 48, former Seahawks linebacker. I thought he had a really cool comment where, you know, he talked about his first interview with John Clayton. Like that's when he felt like he had made it in the NFL was talking to John Clayton. Um, so you just, you know, 
so many people from all different parts of the NFL at the highest levels. I mean, the commissioner put out a statement on John Clayton. How, how many reporters would um, would Roger Goodell put out a statement remembering? Not many. Yeah, definitely not. Well, you know, in the spirit of John Clayton continuing to analyze the Seahawks and uh, sometimes critique the Seahawks, as you said, uh, right up until this offseason, we wanted to kind of catch up on what we uh, has happened for the Seahawks in the past week since we've last recorded. And the main thing that seems to have happened in that period of time is a pretty dramatic reshuffling of the front seven, uh, you know, the, the edge position and then the interior defensive line with the additions of Uchenna Nuosu is a free agent on one of the biggest contracts the Seahawks have given an outside free agent in a long period of time here, two years up to 19 million. Quentin Jefferson returning for his third stint in Seattle. And we already knew at that point that they were going to release Benson Mayoa, but then also Carlos Dunlap and Kerry Hyder. Uh, it seems like, you know, this is evidently part of that really continuing that transition that they started last year from playing a 4 3 to a 3 4 in this different defensive scheme. And then also Clint Hurt putting kind of his stamp on the defense a little bit. Certainly his relationship with Quentin Jefferson seemed to be a, a key factor in him coming back. So, you know, what, what do you make of that set of moves? Yeah, I, I think with Dunlap, it was that was the reason. It was, you know, he is more of a traditional 4-3 defensive end. And Pete Carroll has said that, you know, they want more outside linebacker types. And, and I thought he had a really telling comment at the scouting combine where, he said, you know, Daryl Taylor, like you could not have a player that's a more ideal fit for what we want at that position than Daryl Taylor. And, you know, Daryl Taylor looks like a, a four, a, a three, four outside linebacker, you know, six, four, two, uh, what, 60, you know, fluid enough to drop back and, and, and play in space if you have to. Um, and just really quick off the edge. Carlos Dunlap is a is a fantastic edge rusher. Obviously, their most accomplished edge rusher, but he is a, he is a bigger guy. You know, two hundred eighty pounds. He is more of a traditional four three defensive end. You know, I, I had wondered about the fit there, and I wondered about um, you know I, he didn't seem like a long term fit for them, but I, I thought he would stick around just because of the production at the second half of last season. You know, where he finished with that flurry and. Um, you know, also the fact that his contract meant that um, there just wasn't a, there wouldn't be a ton of savings this year unless they, you know, used what's called the, the post June one designation and really what it, I think it sounds like they're doing and, and pushed a lot of the dead money on to next year. I, I don't know. I can't remember the last time they used that designation if they ever have. And so that's really not something they do. Usually when when they have to eat a lot of dead money, they'll just eat it. And, and get it over with and, and kind of spite that bullet. So I, I did, I did not think that they were going to release him, but it also doesn't surprise me just because of the fit. Now with Hyder, you know, look, I mean, he, he is, he's not a fourth, he's not a three, four outside linebacker. I thought that they might keep him around as, you know, just to play that three, four defensive end. Um, he's not the long guy that maybe they would prefer there. So I, I think he could have been, kind of a casualty of the scheme change too. He also just frankly didn't have a good season at all last year. I think he had one and a half sacks and really was just a non-factor. I don't remember ever seeing him like really jump off the, you know, jump off the screen or, or just jump out. So um, the interesting part about the whole idea of, of Dunlap, maybe not being a scheme fit is I think the reason why in a three, four, you want those athletic Daryl Taylor Uchenna Nwosu type guys is that they can drop into coverage when they have to. We've also heard from Clint Hurt that that's not really what they're going to ask those guys to do. And so that, <laughs> I guess that was another reason why I thought Dunlap would be safe this year. But um, I think that's something that we need more clarity on uh, from Pete Carroll is if you're not dropping those guys into coverage, why exactly do you want that body type, uh, that Daryl Taylor type guy at, at outside linebacker? But um, I guess all, all, all things, you know, said it's, it's, shouldn't be shocking that they moved on from Dunlap. They're still saving him for that playoff run this year. Um, the It just still feels like kind of just a hodgepodge of things put together, though. You know, this defensive line in particular, where, like, like you mentioned, like, we're not going to have talk about edge rushers dropping back into coverage, but then the players who are more traditional edge rushers that can't drop back into coverage are now released. And it feels like like the one-year deals that they gave out and these short-term deals, it's just kind of consistent, maybe beyond Daryl Taylor, 
of they really have not been able to find long-term solutions there. And maybe it's something that they'll address in the draft, but it feels like the Awusu deal was two years. Is that right? Yep. A two, but a two-year deal there, they bring in Kerry Heider for a year, Carlos Dunlap for a year and a half. It just kind of feels like it's this constant cycling of the defensive line until something is able to stick. And the only things that really have during that time period are somebody like Gerald Taylor, who we kind of see as maybe a longer-term solution, but kind of in the like Frank Clark, post-Frank Clark era of this defensive line and pass rush. It feels like it's sort of just been like one Band-Aid after another until they can find something. And this still feels feels like, you know, granted, they gave the second year to uh, Wusu, but other than that, it's kind of just like short-term solution after short-term solution instead of actually building something. Yeah, and I think, you know, now that Dunlap is gone, I, I think a pass rusher could very much be in play uh, with their first, with their, you know, first round pick, whether it's at nine or trading back. Um, you know, you, you've got Uchenna Nwosu, you've got Daryl Taylor, Obviously, Jamal Adams is going to factor into the pass rush, but you still need um, you still need another guy there. I think you still need another guy who can, you know, produce right away. And um, you know, it's hard to get that guy. I think when you're when you're picking late in the first round, like they normally do. Um, I've I've done a study on this and looked at you know um, eight sacks and, and how uncommon that is for guys drafted outside of the first half of the first round. You know, Max Crosby did it, uh, but it's very rare. So, you know, it's hard to it's hard to get a guy who could be an impact pass rusher wide right away, late. You know, after the first half of the first round. But at number nine, you can get that guy, and I think you can especially get that guy this year, which is considered a very good draft for edge rushers. And so, um, I think that should very much be in play. Obviously, tackle is still, um, you know, they both of their starting tackles are, are free agents. Uh, you've got other positions certainly that that you know you can make a case for there, but in a good in a good draft for pass rushers, I think you still need a guy. I, I could see them doing that at number nine. Yeah, I mean Nuoso is an interesting gamble here. He's someone who hasn't produced a ton in terms of sack rate so far in his career, but he is only 25. So despite the fact that it's a two-year deal, you know, I think it it could be something they see as a long-term answer. And uh, I thought it was interesting you pointed out in your piece reacting to this uh, that you know he was number 16 in ESPN's pass block win rate last year. So even though he wasn't necessarily getting to the quarterback, he was frequently beating his his opponent off the line. Yeah, and and that's that's the pass rush run where did ESPN? He was I think 16th, uh, right between Daryl Taylor and uh, and Joey Bosa, uh, coincidentally enough. And so, um, and I think some of you know the other pressure metrics. I think Next Gen Stats has one where he was kind of similarly high. And so, um, you know, I, the hope there obviously for the Seahawks is that that pressure uh, translates to more sacks. And, and, you know, maybe that's just a product of a young guy who's, you know, whose game is not totally refined, you know, where you can beat a guy off the edge, but can you finish? Um, but again, like you mentioned, he's 25. And I think that that's a reason why that deal made sense for them more so than, um, you know, signing an older veteran in free agency. Now that, you know, look, I, I, I thought going into free agency, I guess, before the Wilson trade, that really seemed like a position where, they could break from their MO and spend some money. And you mentioned that the two-year deal, I think it's two years at a little over 19 million is the base value. That is in terms of average per year, that's the, the biggest deal they've given to a free agent from another team under Pete Carroll and John Schneider. Obviously they've given out deals worth more money overall, you know, longer term deals, but in terms of average per year, uh, that's the biggest one. And it seemed like that was a position where they could splurge. You know, Clint Hurt was on, I think, KJR talking about how they need a game wrecker there. Uh, Pete Carroll was talking at the combine about, you know, needing to beef up their pass rush. Before the Wilson trade, I, I think I made the case for for signing Von Miller or, or, you know, making a run at Chandler Jones. Now, I thought Miller was going to be a lot less expensive right. than he was. Yeah. Um, but um, that was before the Wilson trade obviously when you're trading Russell Wilson, you are to some degree rebuilding and you're probably not going to be a contender this year. And so, you know, signing a 33 year old Von Miller, that, that makes less sense um, now knowing kind of where they're at and signing a 25 year old like Nuosu, that makes a lot more sense for them. It, it's, it's for them, it's a pretty big bet, but I think you can easily justify it based on the age and based on, you know, he looks like he could be a guy that's ready to pop. 
Well, let's also talk about another free agent of their own that they brought back, and that's Rashad Penny, uh, reported today by Ian Rappaport of NFL Network, is a one-year deal worth $5.75 million, additional 750 k in incentives. And Rappaport said he turned down more money from other teams to stay with the Seahawks after that breakout end to last season. Uh, clearly showed he was a priority, but also not necessarily the kind of level of investment and in running back that we've seen, you know, Arizona in particular have to make to, to re-sign James Conner. So I think a, a fair deal for the Seahawks here. I think so too. Yeah. And, and I was wondering, you know, his market was so difficult to predict just because he's had such an odd career where he's a first round pick and then he misses, I, I think it was 30 of a possible 69 games, including playoffs over his first four seasons. And then he has that incredible stretch where, you know, he was the most productive running back in the NFL over the last five games, just putting up video game like numbers. And so there's a lot of things there to, to it's, you know, that just makes it, it made it really hard, I think, to gauge his value. And I thought something, you know, if you're the Seahawks, I always thought that, you know, something along the lines of the Carson deal from last year, I think that would be a worthwhile gamble. And I, I can't remember exactly the terms of Carson's deal, but this is right in that same ballpark. And so I think, look, it's definitely a risk. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, every free agent is a risk. But when a guy has that long of an injury history, no doubt there's risk. And if that risk was in the neighborhood of $10 million, I would have said that's too much. That, that's too big of a risk. If it's the, the numbers that it is, you know, 5.75 million, I think that's a very worthwhile risk. You know, we can assume, I think, that the Seahawks are going to uh, have a, a reasonable amount of protection in that deal, you know, putting some of that money in per game roster bonuses that he's got to, uh, you know, be healthy in order to earn. So um, whatever the, the actual risk is in terms of what is guaranteed, it's obviously less than $5.75 million, or at least I would imagine it is. So it's a worthwhile gamble considering what he could be. And and, um, you know, what he could be in what looks like a, a, a running scheme that seems to fit him really well. And, and I think that part of what you saw over those final five games is they I think that they changed some things up in their running scheme. And it, it was you heard Pete Carroll make the comment at the end of I think it was at the scouting combine about the things that Andy Dickerson and Shane Waldron uh, brought there were the, that was the best part of their running game last season. And I think I think that's kind of what you saw at the end there. So. Obviously, this is all contingent upon him staying healthy, and it is a risk, but I think it's a, it's a good one to make. I, I just think it's so hard to judge. I mean, I agree that the contract, the, the number was like, fine. Okay, we can live with this. It was similar to what Chase Edmonds got paid uh, when he signed with the Dolphins, obviously less than James Conner, and the length was uh, shorter. But, you know, I think kind of two points about this. Kevin has talked about this a lot, which is, the long-term value, right? Like, let's say that Rashad Penny has another season where he pops off in the way that he did the last five weeks of the season. They have locked up for one year at this point. All of a sudden, Rashad Penny is going to be a 10 million plus running back at that point. And I, I do feel it's kind of like they, they mitigated the risk on their end by not giving him the long-term deal, but they also didn't give themselves any sort of potential value over the contract of what he's being paid. So it's like he's being paid fairly now and next year he'll be paid fairly as well because of his production this year. So there's no place that they can look at it and say, okay, we've now benefited beyond the contract, the value over the contract. They just did not give themselves the ability for that to happen in this deal. And then the other piece is, we're about to find out what this team looks like running the ball without Russell Wilson. And, you know, those five weeks were in a scheme that Russell Wilson was the quarterback. And no matter what next year, basically barring the impossible, there's going to be a quarterback under center who's worse than Russell Wilson. And I think it's going to make the run game look very different. So while I went into hypothetically would have gone into next year, feeling very confident about Rashad Penny or excited about Rashad Penny. Now it's like, I mean, it really just depends on who the quarterback is. But all things considered, if it's Drew Locke under center, it's not going to be pretty for Rashad Penny. And when you're paying $12 million to, assumedly, Chris Carson and Rashad Penny together to face, you know, very, very heavy boxes, or Drew Locke's going to be trying to pass over them, I think it's going to be a very different world for each of those running backs. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point. I mean, I, I think, look, running backs in Seattle – um, they've had the benefit of playing with a good quarterback who forces defenses to account for the fact that he's the best deep ball thrower in the NFL. And, you know, do you want to, do you want to, um, you know, leave one safety hanging out to dry there? 
uh, with Russell throwing deep to DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett. So, um, yeah, that, that's a good point about this is this could be harder for running backs in Seattle now that Russell Wilson is no longer there. I mean, Drew Locke, they're obviously high on him, and we can talk about Drew Locke, but um, he's not Russell Wilson. And so he, you're right. He, you know, Penny and Carson and whoever else is running the ball for them is probably going to see more stacked boxes than they have. When I've seen people talking on, sorry, the <laughs> Kevin is going to make a point about the line, which is there's still Trent, Trent Brown chatter. There is a hypothetical world where they have the best offensive line that they would have had at any point during the Russell Wilson era going into next season. And I just fundamentally am not convinced that that matters. I was listening to, I think it was Ben Solak reacting to the Devonte Adams trade. And he was talking about basically the last thing that John Gruden and Mike Mayock did was gut the Raiders offensive line. And then the Raiders turned around and made the playoffs the following season with the gutted offensive line. And it's like, I'm not sure if I'm sure that there is on some level a correlation between good offensive lines and offensive success, but there's a much stronger correlation between good quarterbacks and offensive success than good offensive lines. I just don't think you can take away Russell Wilson, drop in a better offensive line and say that this is going to be a top 10 offense. I don't know. Did you watch those five games Drew Locke started in 2019? (laughs) Well, we should transition to that. Uh, We had the press conference last Wednesday after the start of the new league year and the first chance for Pete Carroll and John Schneider to sort of tell their side of the the Russell Wilson trade. And that definitely stood out the way that they talked about Drew Locke. Uh, Pete Carroll's quote, you go back to his first year when he was balling as a rookie, when he was four and one, his third down numbers were terrific, taking care of the football really well. For whatever reason, the coordinator left after that time Times changed for him and didn't play to that same level. So exactly what we have evaluated, the process we have evaluated, he showed. John stayed with it and followed him through all the way through his career, and we've watched it happen. We think he's still that guy, and so we'll see. So is this them saying that Drew Locke is going to have an opportunity to win the job, or is it going to say say that they're willing to go into camp with him as the favorite to win that job? Those are kind of two different ways, I think, to, to read that possibility. Uh, yeah, I think it's more so the latter. I, I think what you're hearing there is um, a few things. One, in, in the broader sense, you're hearing them and, and this, you know, comments from John Schneider and, and everything I've heard behind the scenes to indicate a very strong belief that, you know, Drew Locke could be a, a good quarterback and he just hasn't really had a, a fair shot at showing it. Um, they obviously like the physical tools, you know, the arm strength and the ability to move in the pocket. But from what I understand, and Carol kind of, hinted at this talking about the OC change after his rookie season, but they feel like he has gotten kind of a raw deal uh, in Denver and thus a, an unfair rap. And, and what I mean by there is, you know, so his rookie season, he was, uh, I think uh, tabbed to be their starter drafted in the second round. He sprains his thumb in uh, the preseason. This is the first 11 games. So he comes back for the final five, plays pretty well in those final five games. I think uh, goes four and one only loss was to the chiefs who won the super bowl that year. Granted the four wins were against bad defenses. There's no, there's no doubt about that, but throws seven touchdowns to three interceptions really takes good care of the ball there. Um, and then the Broncos fire their offensive coordinator, Rich Scrangello uh, after that season. And remember that was, so that was the 19 season going into 20. So he's got to learn a whole new offense and this is the first of, of two, really the, the, the worst uh, of the two pandemic impacted off seasons where you're, you're not doing anything in person. Uh, you're learning it all virtually. And so for a young quarterback, even in a normal setting, that's going to, you know, you got your work cut out for you learning a new offense as, as a young quarterback. And that is that challenge is amplified in a big way when you're trying to do it in that type of virtual setting. And so, um, like that was, they feel like that was, was, you know, some of his struggles were a product of that. And then he goes out and has the, the turnover plagued 2020 season uh, cost him his starting job. And, and they, you know, go uh, get Teddy Bridgewater to be their starter. And so he's really had, um, you know, one full, not even a full season, but really one season of being the starter. And so, you know, the, the my reaction I'm sure was the same as everybody's when I saw that. And, and I was like, Drew Locke, like, is he kind of a throw in here? Is he a guy who you're just maybe hoping could be a backup and you could kind of develop him there? Um, but the more I've heard about it uh, from talking to people there and from hearing what Pete Carroll and John Schneider say publicly, 
they really feel like they, they, they could have something there. They obviously don't expect him. They're not counting on him to be Wilson's long-term successor, but you know, they're going to take a shot at, and, and see if he could be that now that they're not going to do that. I don't think without, you know, making him win the job, they're going to bring in a veteran quarterback, I think, and they're going to make Drew Locke beat him out, but um, they're not going to hand the job to him. But I, I really think that they want him to win that job. Yeah, I mean, he was legitimately good that season. You know, if you even when DVOA, which adjusts for the quality of those defenses they were facing, still rated above average, it's just the dramatic difference, I think, between that and the 2020 season, where, you know, as you mentioned, led the league with 15 interceptions, which is fascinating in the context of, you know, also in that press conference, Pete Carroll sort of doubling down on the quarterback is, you know, point guard of the offense, yeah. don't make mistakes philosophy. Yeah. And then, you know, just another reminder of, uh, you know, why it, it really wasn't a great fit for Russell Wilson. I mean, what Carol was talking about there and you now he, he used the point in one of his favorite analogies about the point guard, which, you know, he means the quarterback, he doesn't want the quarterback to be the star of the show. He wants the quarterback to be, um, you know, the point guard who's kind of distributing and, and, and setting other people up. And he means um, a Pete Carroll era point guard as opposed to yes, John <laughs> yeah. Stockton type guy. Yeah. I, I think it was Curtis Crabtree at KJR said he's not talking about a Russell Westbrook type point guard. <laughs> um, but yeah. And he talked about being a game manager, which, you know, he, he's talking about the opposite of let Russ cook. And so um, yeah, that, that was just kind of another reminder of, one of the, the many things working against the, the Russell Wilson Seahawks long-term marriage is just the, the differing philosophies on how they want that position to be played. And so, um, yeah, but going back to Locke, I mean, the, the, you know, the turnovers that, that had to gall Carroll seeing those 15 interceptions. And, you know, that's another reason why uh, it is kind of a slight change of subject. I mean, you, you're going to hear, look, they, they still need a backup or they still need a veteran quarterback. And because of the situation they're in with moving on from Russell Wilson, I think, you know, most people around the league would probably don't think uh, that, you know, they, they realize that there's a big drop off from Russell Wilson to Drew Locke. And so you're going to hear the Seahawks be attached, uh, be linked to like every available quarterback, um, whether it's true or not. Uh, you're, you're going to hear them being a team that's supposedly interested just because the way this works, as you guys know, is agents would, would use a team like this as leverage to say, you know, well, it's, it's very plausible that the Seahawks are going to be interested in so-and-so. And so we'll float that name out there. I say that because Jameis Winston's name was floated out as somebody the Seahawks could be interested in. And he is the antithesis of a Pete Carroll quarterback. Like can you imagine Jameis Winston and all, you know, his turnover um, prone style of play? I mean, that would make Pete Carroll's head explode. So I, I just give that little aside just to, mm-hmm. as kind of a warning to everybody who was going to hear different quarterbacks being linked to Seattle, um, uh, you know, take that with a grain of salt, just because you, you're probably hearing teams and agents, real agents, really not teams, but you're hearing agents going to use Seattle as kind of uh, leverage for their guys. Well, for throwing out seasons where you led the league in interceptions, then we can just talk about Jameis the last two years in, in New Orleans where he wasn't wasn't his turnover prone. Right, right. I yeah, I yeah, that's true. And and Sean Payton did he did kind of rein him in, but I, I looked at the numbers. I think um I haven't written down somewhere, but I off the top of my head, I think it was 115 turnovers in 82 career games. 1.4 turnovers per game. And when you compare that to Russell Wilson, he's like at 0.7 or something like that. So um, yeah, Pete Carroll's head would explode with Jameis Winston at quarterback. I'm trying to look up on Ben Baldwin's CPOE on the RBS DM site. Uh, Drew Locke in that 2019 season seems like he had an okay season, all things considered in 2019, 2020, he was 16th in 2019, uh, you know, which I all things considered, if we could find ourselves with the 16th best quarterback in CPOE this year, we'd feel great about it. Especially uh, in, his contract this year. In 2020, he was pretty much the worst qualifying quarterback in the entire NFL. Which, again, if you're isolating five games versus you know a full season after that, obviously, like you can take out the situation and the circumstance. But if you're anticipating, if you can isolate the best five games of somebody's entire career and say that's who they are, but not anything else after that, I think you're really looking for something there. You're, you're seeking it out, uh, especially because it happened when he was a rookie and the evidence after that is 
you know, the roster was even stronger, I think, for the Broncos the following two seasons. So we'll see. Uh, do you think as as we head into the draft in, I guess, a little over a month here, do you think there's a chance that they do draft a quarterback in the first round? Is that anything that you're seeing? No, no. Uh, I mean, you know, look, feel free to save this. We'll get old takes exposed, queued up and everything. But um, no, I, I really don't. Uh, you know, and I, I had really gotten the impression uh, both before the scouting combine and since it, I've gotten the same impression that they just don't like any of these guys um, enough to take in the first round with the thought that, that they could step in for Russell Wilson and, and be the guy right away. Um, maybe second round. I think if they draft a quarterback, it, it's probably going to be in the middle, middle or later rounds. Um, but I just, I really do not get the, and, you know, I'm, a lot of teams pro- might feel that way too. Um, just because this is, as you guys know, not a good quarterback draft. I mean, some of those guys are going to go in the first round just because that's the way it works. But um, yeah, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think it, it's interesting um, they have drafted, you know, Schneider comes from the Ron Wolf, Ted Thompson model where they would draft a quarterback basically every year. Cause the organizational philosophy was, you know, you can't have enough of those guys. Um, you, you always kind of have one guy uh, as a developmental guy and you see what you can get out of him. Um, you know, the Seahawks have obviously drafted Russell Wilson and Alex Magoo was the only other quarterback. And I really think that a big reason why, that was was because that's kind of tough to do when you've got Wilson there um you know that that it's that's there's there's it's tricky when you've got a quarterback there who obviously um you know I think like I don't mean to single out Wilson here but I think a lot of quarterbacks would would maybe feel threatened uh by you know depending on how early you take that guy they would feel threatened by that um and I think just given the, the nature of the relationship and how it kind of got tense. I think that was difficult for them to do. And so you're obviously not going to have that issue now. So I think you're going to see them draft quarterbacks a lot more frequently uh, than they used to. Not, not, and not just because they need a quarterback, just because there's, there's that awkwardness. That's no longer part of the equation. We're going to find out how many opportunities they have to do that. Um, But the, the reality is I, I do agree with you that, you know, when the Packers were doing it, when it was Brett Favre that they were developing or whatever, right. When they drafted Aaron Rodgers it was a completely different era of quarterbacks and the movement for quarterbacks. I mean, we saw the Packers did it with Jordan love and it led to two years of drama within the organization. It was something that I'm sure if they could go back and undo that move, they probably would. I mean, also I think, you know, people think of the Rogers pick in conjunction with that, the Packers drafting and developing a lot of backup quarterbacks, but you know, Mark Brunel was a fifth round pick. Uh, Matt Haas was what the sixth round. So they, yep. it also worked really well for them because they were drafting these guys in low rounds and trading them for extremely high value picks. So if you could do that, you definitely should do it. The Seahawks haven't shown that same ability to, to you, develop. If you can do that and maintain the balance with your starting quarterback, which I just do not, it's not the fucking 1990s anymore. Like you cannot do that anymore. But it's different if you draft somebody in the first round. And if you draft somebody in the sixth round is what I'm saying. Yes. Um, I even think, you know, Brady and Jimmy G there ended up with tension there because of it, yeah. where it was like, it, it's not, a, it's a sort of, it's an ancient philosophy that when it works, it's great, but it's just a difficult thing to do. Uh, this really is hearing what you're saying about them. Not, I mean, we've seen some, this is probably just Seahawks Twitter excitement talking about Malik Willis or somebody like that. And I just fundamentally, like you were talking about Jameis, cannot imagine Pete Carroll turning over his offense to somebody like Malik Willis. And the idea that the one thing that Pete Carroll cares about is his philosophy more than basically anything else. And what Malik Willis would require is a change in philosophy on offense. Granted, they would be running the ball a lot more, but it would be running the ball in a very different way that they, I think they would like to. And it's, it's definitely not your hand the ball off, hand the ball off play action style offense that it would require. And so that one didn't pass the bullshit test to me uh, for somebody like Willis. But basically what you're saying is this is a, a, they're going all in on the philosophy. And this is rallying around what Pete Carroll has been saying for the last decade. And John Schneider has gone along with for the last decade and seeing if it works. Is that, is that kind of your impression heading into this next season? Yeah. I mean, this is going to be, you know, Pete Carroll, the way he wants it done. And, you know, I, I think it's been a tricky balance for him. Just because, again, you've had a quarterback who wants to, to throw the ball all over the field and who wants to cook, 
Um, and, you know, Carol wants to do it his way, but he doesn't want to, you know, he's trying to maintain the relationship there. And, and so, yeah, I think it's been difficult where he's kind of had to straddle um, those two things. And he, you know, Drew Locke's not going to protest, uh, you know, not being able to drop back 40 times a game. He's just not in position to do that. So, yeah, this is this is going to be done the way that, that Pete Carroll wants it done. And, um, you know, I, I think some of these moves are, are Pete Carroll moves. I think Will Disley re-signing him for – uh, 24, you know, three years and 24 million. I think that's a Pete Carroll move. And, you know, the, the, the way that I've heard that these things work uh, a lot of times in free agency is, you know, they'll have a value. I, I don't know for a fact that this happened with Disney, but you know, I think they'll have, a, they'll have a value on, on a guy in the scouting department and, and they'll all, you know, come together and just have an idea of what they'd be comfortable paying that guy. And then, you know, Carroll will, kind of come in and, and he'll get uh you know to, to use the phrase that he used once when talking about wanting to go for it on fourth down he'll get hormonal and he'll get antsy and and he'll say no 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 let, let, let's do this let's just make it happen you know so I, I don't know if that happened at disney but i could just given the price and given how much of a pete carroll player he is you know tight end who's gonna block his ass off in the running game and um i i wonder if that may have been if that really may have been a carroll driven move more than anything yeah, that all checks out. And I think that's like we often see this in the NBA with coaches who take over the general manager role is they're more concerned. Like Stan Van Gundy talked about this specifically on the low post, get the right player, then get the right value. So it, it would make a lot of sense, I think, from that standpoint. Well, what is your impression, you know, knowing that we're sort of heading into the season, rallying around the PKR philosophy? What is your impression inside of the VMAC organizationally of the job security of Pete Carroll and John Schneider. If this is a five and 12 season, if this is a four and 13 season, is that it? Or do you feel like they have years to turn the ship around? You know, I would imagine that I don't have a great answer for that. I guess I should preface it by saying that just because, you know, Jody Allen is as big of a mystery to me as she is to you, as she is to everybody listening. And so, um, I don't have a great feel for what she is thinking or what she would be thinking, but I, I could take an educated guess and say that if she's willing to move on from Russell Wilson, um, not to mention Bobby Wagner and, and, you know, sign off on them. It sounds like going with Drew Lockett quarterback. I imagine that she realizes that they could be in for a tough season and, you know, maybe it is a, a five and 12. That sounds weird. Uh, five and 12. <laughs> but maybe it is a five and 12 season. Um, I, I think that they could have a good enough roster to, to be better than that. You know, even if Drew Locke has his struggles, but you know, th- there's also the contract thing. And that's why it, it always kind of seemed weird to me that, um, you know, and I heard the uncertainty from, from talking to people uh, too. So I don't, the, the whole uncertainty about whether Carolyn Schneider would be back last season. I'm not saying that was all a media fabrication or anything, but it, it always did seem weird to me just because, you know, those contracts are guaranteed. And, you know, John uh, Pete Carroll is making, I think, believe well over $10 million a year. And he had so many years left on the contract that that would have meant just eating 50 or so, you know, nearly $50 million uh, kind of would have been the same deal with Schneider. He not making as much money, but a long-term contract that he just signed with guaranteed money there. So, you know, owners are not in the business of just, uh, throwing money down the toilet like that. And so um, between that, you know, the fact that they are still early into contract extensions and the fact that I think I- any reasonable person could, uh, you know, predict some growing pains this season, I, unless it's just a total flame out uh, disaster dumpster fire, I, I would imagine that they're going to be safe. Owners aren't, aren't in the business of flushing that kind of money down the toilet. That's what public universities are for with their head coaches. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Well, just, you know, government, uh, a bunch of, yeah, a bunch of other people are in that business, but not NFL owners. Well, the last thing I wanted to ask is, uh, you know, we still got a couple of positions where the Seahawks obviously lost DJ Reed at cornerback, added Artie Burns, re-signed uh, Sidney Jones, and then ta- tackle is wide open with Dwayne Brown, Brandon Shell still free agents. They've been linked to Trent Brown, who apparently visited last week. Do you see them spending any more at cornerback, or do you think tackle is kind of that last spot for them to really solidify? Yeah, I think that if they make any other big move at, at cornerback this season, I would imagine that it's going to be in the draft. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I would guess that they're going to pick at least one cornerback, whether it's at nine or somewhere else. I don't know, but 
Um, I, I, I think that they believe in Sidney Jones uh, enough and, and Trent Brown to where they, you know, they could go and Artie Burns too, and that they could, they feel like they could go into the season as, you know, with those guys starting and I, you know, DJ Reed, I think that um, he's a good player. I just don't, I don't think he's an irreplaceable guy. And so I didn't see a problem with them letting him go for $11 million a season. I, I also wonder too, you know, the fact that DJ Reed played really well uh, the past season and a half, I think that does show that you can have a shorter guy, uh, you know, and it showed them that they can have a shorter guy there at the same time. I really, I really wonder if they are still reluctant to have two shorter guys out there. And if they believe that they've got something in Trey Brown, if they believe that he's going to come back from that knee injury, then um, I think that that was probably, you know, expecting him to be on one of those sides. I think that probably put a cap onto how far they would go to re-sign DJ Reed, just because I think ideally for them, they would not have two shorter guys out there, even though they've, they've shown that they can uh, play with those guys. So um, I think uh, if they're going to spend big money here uh, in this second wave, third wave of free agency, I think it's going to be a tackle. I'm intrigued by Trent Brown. Obviously he would come with a ton of risk just because I think he's played in a combined 14 games over the past two seasons. He's the biggest player in the NFL at like six, eight, 380 pounds. So, you know, you would have to worry about the conditioning there. Um, if, if the money was right. And if you could sign him to a deal that reflects the injury history there, I don't think that would be the worst thing just because if you're the Seahawks and, and again, you are in some level of rebuild here, you want to see what you've got in stone Forsyth and Jake Curran. And in a weird way, I'm not, I'm not saying you would ever want a, a guy to uh, you signed a significant amount of money to it gave him a, you know, a, a significant deal in free agency. You would never want that guy to miss games, but they, they do have to get, you know, stone Forsyth and Jake Curran on the field um, in some way. And so um it maybe wouldn't be the worst thing. Uh, you know, again, if you could sign him to a deal that, that reflects the injury history, um, you know, I, I don't know how big of an upgrade he would be over Dwayne Brown or Brandon Shell, but um, he's an intriguing guy. I, I guess I'm rambling here. I'm sorry. I'll wrap this point up. I promise. I would also wonder about the scheme fit just because he is a bigger guy again. And in what should be more of a zone scheme, um, I would imagine that you want more athletic tackles as opposed to, um, a massive guy like that who may be a better fit for a power scheme, but you know, the Rams made it work with big tackles. And so I'm, I'm sure they could too. Well, the Seahawks has certainly kept you busy over the last couple of weeks here, Brady. We'll see if uh, there's anything more to come and have been appreciating all your coverage on ESPN.com. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, you bet. Kevin and Tristan, thank you for having me. This was fun.